Today we are beginning part two of our series, Engaged, and we started this back in, in January, and what we said then was that this was going to be our theme for the year. And so we focused on this theme in different ways. We haven't just preached uh, um, only this the entire time. We have focused on it in different ways. But today we want to begin part two. And one of the key verses that uh, we focused on in January was from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And what we recognized in this passage was that, that the early church did not take being an engaged church, or they did not take church as something that you were just this, um, you know, visitor to, or you just went to whenever you wanted. They devoted themselves to the, the church. They devoted each of themselves to their relationship with Jesus and to doing it together. Uh, these words, you know, the, the, or the word devoted is a key word because I think that that is something that each one of us must exercise in order to truly be engaged in the local church. And I want to just say off up the um, at the front is that we, I think, in our relationship with Jesus, we should never consider that our relationship with Jesus is to be just about us as individuals. Obviously, what God did for each one of us as individuals is extremely important, but there's something about the body of Christ coming together and, and uh, working together. So during these next four weeks, we want to look at what does it mean to be an engaged church in, the re in regards to spiritual disciplines. Now, when we talk about spiritual dif disciplines, I think we often think of those also as very individualistic. We, we think about, you know, prayer, and we think of Bible reading, and maybe even solitude, and those different disciplines, and we may look at them very often as like, well, what am I supposed to do as an individual in regards to each one of those? And I, I wanted to say those are very, very important, but at the same time, I believe that there are disciplines, spiritual disciplines, that we need to exercise as a congregation, as a corporate body. Um, for example, we're going we're gonna to talk about confession today. Next week, Pastor Peter is going to talk to us about worship. And when you think of worship, worship is one of those things that very often we look at and say, oh, we are all worshipers. The question is, what are we worshiping? But at the same time, when we come together on a Sunday morning or when we come together as a body, there's something about us worshiping together that cannot happen by itself when we're as individuals. And so we're going to look at that, and then we're going to talk about guidance. We're going to talk about celebrating. Again, these are disciplines that we as a church need to practice and exercise as a body. And so we're going to begin this series now looking at confession. And just, again, as a little, maybe as a note, this is one of those sermons that I have spent a lot of time rewriting and rewriting again. And, and uh, I'm not saying that you're getting a draft version this morning, but... Every now and then, there's a, there's a sermon that just doesn't seem to come together the way one would like it. And I feel that that indicates to me that maybe God has something for us this morning that, that isn't going to end with like, oh, well, that makes sense, or oh, now I get it all. But rather, maybe the sermon's going to end in the way of us going, I need to think about that some more. I need to wrestle with it. I need to consider what that means for me. I don't need some pastor telling me exactly what I should do. I need to process what this means for me. And so I trust that each one of us is going to leave here today really thinking through what are we supposed to do with what we hear here this morning. I remember once I was with a group of pastors some time back, and we were talking as pastors, and, and uh, you know, one of, you know, just talking about feeling isolated sometimes, and and not really having a place to vent, and, and on and on, you know, kind of feeling sorry for ourselves maybe. 
Uh, I heard a pastor say, you know, one of, the, one of the pastors there, he said this. He says, my, one of my greatest fears as a pastor is that if people really knew who I was or if people really knew what I'm like or what, what's going on inside me sometimes, he says, I, I'm afraid that they wouldn't like me. I'm afraid that, you know, if they really knew who I was, if they really saw me for who I am, they, they may not like me. And so this is one of those things he's like, man, I just don't really know how to process this. I remember at that moment thinking, and I think is still true today. I, I remember thinking then, I, I, I think that that's how most people feel. That most of us have this feeling of saying, you know what, if people really knew how broken I was, or, or, or some of the thoughts I have, or... Some of the things I've done, if people really knew me, they may not like me. And I think all of us probably struggle with that to some degree. I think for many people, they feel that they have to, you know, that they are the only ones that are struggling. They have to somehow put this front out. Yet all of us know, all of us know that that's not true. All of us know that we are all struggling with something. But at the same time, we still often feel like, well, I'm the only one who's this broken. I'm the only one who's dealing with this kind of stuff. And what that does is that empowers us to stay quiet. That empowers us to, to not share with others what we are struggling with, what we are dealing with. And so maybe there's a, maybe there's a sin in our life, or maybe there's a struggle, maybe there's a, an area of hurt or sorrow or whatever it may be. But because we have convinced ourselves that we are the only ones dealing with this, we just keep it to ourselves. And that empowers us to keep it to ourselves more and more and more. And so what we want to talk about this morning, I guarantee you, is gonna, we're going to struggle with. Because what, I'm, what we want to look at this morning, what I want us to wrestle with, is the idea, or the, 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 the whole idea of confessing our sins to each other. Now, if you think for one minute I am suggesting that we put a mic up here, and make a line, and everybody comes and airs their dirty laundry? No. Because the reality is that would probably be more harmful than positive, you know. And the other truth is simply this, is that I think for many of us that would maybe hear those things, we wouldn't really know what to do with them. But I want us to consider, and I want us to wrestle with the idea of what if we had a person or a group of people in our lives that we would allow ourselves to open up to and to share our brokenness with and to share our sorrows and, and to maybe at times share about the sin that we are struggling with. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more. But in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It says this, The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I love the thought behind these verses, and I think all of us love what it would, you know, what this could possibly mean for us. The belonging to a church where when you mess up, you don't have to keep it a secret. You don't have to feel alone. You don't have to bear the weight of that burden. You can share your burdens. You can share your brokenness, your sins with others. And by doing so, you receive healing and freedom. In Joshua chapter 7, we read about a man named Achan. And if you know the story of Achan, you know that he was Achan for trouble. <laughs> yeah, thought of that this morning. As a matter of fact, in my Bible, when we read about Achan, it, actually, it literally says, my, the subject title on the top of the uh, chapter says, 
you know, Achan's sin. Imagine having an entire chapter dedicated to exposing your sin. Well, here's the story of Achan. Achan was one of the Israelites who marched around Jericho um, when, when the walls fell down. And if you don't know the story, here's what happened. God said, you know, they came into the promised land, and God said, there's Jericho, I want you to walk around it. For six days, you're going to walk around it once. And then on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times. And they did. But God also gave this instruction. He said, I don't want anybody to take anything out of that place. No one is supposed to personally benefit from what I am about to do. And so they did. They walked around, and the walls fell down. And as we often do, Achan did. He took something that was good, he took something that was positive, and he made a mess of it. And we read later that Achan took some things from that city, buried them in his tent. Now here's what I want you to visualize. I want you to visualize the Israelites celebrating and worshiping God, and they're, you know, they're going crazy, and they're having an amazing time. They're worshiping God, and they're praising God for what he did. He brought the city down without any of them being injured, and now they have victory, and yet here they are worshiping God, and yet there is a secret buried in their camp. I think it's an important thing for us to visualize because on the one hand, they're worshiping God while they are totally unaware of the fact that there is a sin buried in camp. Well, a little while later, they, they decide to attack another town, and it's literally just a small town. This one's called Ai, and it's so small as a matter of fact that they decide it's not even worth uprooting the entire camp. So they only send two to 3,000 men to attack this camp, and the people go off and they attack the camp, I mean the, the town, and, but before they even get all the way through the town, the people of that town come out, and they rout the Israelites, and they kill a number of them, and they drive them back to their own camp. And Joshua is absolutely in shock. Joshua chapter 7, verse 7, look what he says. He says, the last sovereign Lord, why? Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then? Will you do for your own great name? Now, just think about this for a moment. Wouldn't you think that the very first thing Joshua would say to God after the army comes back and they've been routed and the, the, it's just an absolute disaster, you would think the very first thing Joshua would say to God is, Who sinned? Who among us is guilty of sin? Because there's no way, God, that you would give us this amazing victory over here only to give us complete defeat over here without there being something wrong with what we've done. But instead, what Joshua does is what we are so prone to doing ourselves. Instead of looking for what, who sinned or, or what did we do wrong or, or what did we need to change, instead of cha looking at those things, all Joshua does is look at, looks at the circumstances. His circumstances, man, if we would have only stayed on the other side of the Jordan, if we would have just been content to stay there, now we're over here, and now, and he's just focused on the circumstances. And today we do the same thing. 
Today we may say things like, man, if only I hadn't gone out with my friends. Man, if the circumstance had just been different. If only I wouldn't have gone out with my friends. If only he or she hadn't shown up. And then I would have been fine. But man, if I only hadn't been so lonely. I was so lonely and that's why I did what I did. Instead of recognizing the sin, we so often focus on the circumstances in our lives. Now, as a church, we as a church do this as well. Individuals do this, and definitely the church does this. The church, it may sound like this. We just feel like we're really not growing spiritually. We feel like we're in a rut. We feel like we're just staying in place, and it's just not healthy. We want to be a vibrant church. And so instead of looking at, is there sin in the camp, Instead of doing that, we may look at the circumstances. Well, what if we do this or what if we do that? What if we change, you know, a few things and, and maybe if this or this? And we look at the circumstances and we think if we only adjust, adjust the circumstances in our lives, then somehow we'll be fine. And what Joshua fails to do here is he fails to recognize that there is, camp, uh, there is sin in the camp. Look at God's response to Joshua. Verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. It's like an angry dad almost. Get up. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Now, I don't really know what to do with the last part. I wish it was just like stand up. You know, and I would say to all you, stand up. And you'd all stand up and we'd really nail this thing. You know, but I mean, what do you do with now? What are you all doing? What are you doing on your face? You know, you're not all on your face. So anyway, here is Joshua face down on the ground before God. And I think what he's doing, instead of repenting of sin, he is making excuses. He's blaming the circumstances. He's feeling sorry for him. What are we going to do with our great name? God, what are you going to do with your great name? As if God's worried about his name. And God is not having any of it. God doesn't want false humility. God wants repentance. God doesn't want us to look at what caused us to do what we did. He just simply wants us to acknowledge what we did and repent of what we did. Look at what God says in verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. So that causes me to wrestle with this question, and I hope you'll allow me to cause you to wrestle with this question, and that is, are there any secret sins buried here? Or how about at your home or at your workplace? Are there things that are buried in our lives that we're like, man, I hope nobody ever finds out about this. I hope that no one will ever be aware of what I did. Achan thought he had hidden his sin and gotten away with it. And in fact, he had fooled Joshua and he had fooled all the people. As a matter of fact, if they would have known that there was sin in the camp, there's no way they would have attacked this other town. Because it would have been like, there's no way. If there's sin in our camp, we can't go and attack another town because we'll lose. They would have dealt with it. But Achan, he had fooled everybody. But not God. So God instructs Joshua through this complex method of figuring out, this painfully, painfully um, obvious way of figuring out who is guilty. And so what they do is all 12 tribes of Israel, 
come before God. This would have been quite the scene. And so then the tribe of Judah was picked. And so then everybody, you know, that eliminates 11 groups of people. That's a lot of people. Like, whew, you know. And so now the clan of Judah is standing. All the clans of Judah are now standing before God. And then God, you know, picks through each one until finally all we see is there stands Achan all by himself. I just think, you know, Joshua must have been somewhat shocked. Look at what he says in verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Can I just say, it's one thing to confess when you've been caught. It's a whole other thing to confess voluntarily. It's one thing to get caught doing something and you're kind of like, there's, there's no out. Like, I'm done. I'm busted. It's another thing to be able to go to someone and say, you know what? You don't know about this, but here's what I did. And I want to make it right. Well, Achan, he's caught. He has no way out. And look at his reply. He says, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that things do not go very well for Achan. But I want you to listen carefully. Because what we're talking about this morning is confessing our sins to one another. I want you to consider, listen very carefully to Diedrich Bonhoeffer. In his book, uh, Life Together, here's what he writes. He says, a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother, the sin has to be brought into light. Now, to me, that is a profound thought. We may feel very often that our sin is our business and God's business, and that's it. That if I sin, all I need to do is just go to God with it. Well, this is suggesting that maybe we can find ourselves taking our sins so lightly that, there's, that even though we go to God with it, we have taken our sins so lightly that we really treat it as if though it's no big deal. Now, Richard Foster, he wrote a book called Celebration of Disciplines, and he writes that there are three benefits to confessing our sins to one another. So let me go through them really quickly. First benefit is this. It removes all the excuses. We are so prone to blaming our sin on everybody and everything else instead of taking personal responsibility for them. But when we confess our sins to others, we acknowledge that it's our fault. We, we, we understand that we are the ones who did it. There's no, there's no such thing as you know, a, a judgment and error. But when we confess our sins to others, we have to recognize that we are the ones who are at fault in what we did. The second benefit is this. Sin becomes far more real. In John chapter 20, verse 23, Jesus says, If you forgive anyone's sin, their sin is, sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, in this verse, there is enough theology packed in here for us to study for a whole month. But I think what this verse is suggesting here is that there is power in confessing our sins to one another. 
There is power also in receiving forgiveness from one another. I fear that sometimes what we have done is we have treated our sin as if it's really not that big of a deal. And it didn't start that way. It began by us confessing our sin to God, and then we repeated that sin, and then we confessed it again to God, and then we repeated it and repeated it, and we confessed and we confessed. And finally, we basically are treating our sin as if, though, well, whatever. It's just really not that big of a deal. And now suddenly you dare yourself to stand in front of somebody and you've confessed this sin to people over and over, and, I mean to God, over and over. But now that you are standing in the presence of a person and you're saying, I want you to know what I've been doing. I truly believe that when that happens, that sin becomes so much more real to us. And we recognize just how repulsive sin is to God. The third benefit is very similar to the, the second, and that is this. That it forces us to pause. That when we confess our sins to others, it forces us to pause and consider the seriousness of what we have done. We haven't simply been bad or done something. You know, we have, we have committed something that needs cleansing, that needs forgiveness, that needs to be dealt with and never repeated. By confessing our sins to each other, it makes our sins that much more real to us. And it brings healing. Richard Foster talks a little bit about what he experienced in his life. He was a pastor and he shares about as a pastor he was, he just felt that he was, you know, that something was blocking him from really having a full experience with God. And so he prayed and he, God gave him this plan. And what he decided to do is he, he um, broke his life into three parts, his childhood, his adolescence, and his adult life. So he decided that for three days he was going to sit and spend one day on each one of those stages of his life. So he started in day one, and he wrote down everything that came to mind about his childhood that maybe needed to be cleared up. And he did the same with his adolescence and then with his adult life. And he didn't process anything. He, didn't, he just wrote it down. Whatever came to mind, he just wrote it down. He didn't try to justify it. He didn't try to understand why God was bringing those things to mind. He just simply wrote it down. And I want to read you now, um, just really quickly, what he shares with us about what he did with that list um, as he goes to his friend. Anyway, this is Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline. He says, writing, paper in hand, I then went to a dear brother in Christ. I had made arrangements with him a week ahead so he understood the purpose of our meeting slowly sometimes painfully i read my sheet adding only those comments necessary to make the sin clear when i had finished i began to return the paper to my briefcase wisely my counselor confessor gently stopped my hand and took the sheet of paper without a word he took a wastebasket and as i watched he tore the paper into hundreds of tiny pieces and dropped them into it. The power, that powerful, nonverbal expression of forgiveness was followed by a simple absolution. My sin, I knew, were as far away as the east is from the west. Next, my friend, with the laying on of hands, prayed a prayer of healing for all the sorrow and the hurt of the past. The power of that prayer lives with me today. 
I cannot say I experienced any dramatic feelings. I did not. In fact, the entire experience was an act of sheer obedience with no compelling feelings in the, in the least. But I am convinced that it set me free in a way I had not known before. It, seems, it seemed that I was released to explore what were for me new and uncharted regions of the Spirit. Following that event, I began to move into several of the disciplines described in this book that I have never experienced before. Was there a casual connection? I don't know, and I frankly don't care. It is enough to have obeyed the inner prompting from above. And I think all of us here this morning are going to wrestle now a little bit with, well, what do, I, what do I do with that? What do I do with this whole sermon? Because I think most of us, when we consider our sin, we have thought about, you know, I will confess my sin to God, and then that's it. And I want you to know very clearly that only through Jesus can we receive salvation. Only through him. But there is something powerful about confessing our sins to one another. So I want to leave you with this simple challenge. Like I said before, I don't know how this all wraps up and closes for each one of us. But I want to leave all of us with a simple challenge to consider, do we have somebody in our lives? Do we have a person in our life that we would be able to go to and say, here is what's going on in my life. Here is what is happening. And here are the things that I've done. Now, one of the things that Richard writes in this book, which I think is very important for us to remember, is that we do not live in a constant state of confessing our sins to people. That would begin to feel and sound like self-condemnation. But for a period of our lives, for a moment in our lives, we go to someone and say, hey, here's what I need to get. I need to tell you about this, and I need to clean this up. I need to be healed, and I need to experience the full freedom that God has for me. So I leave you with that. You wrestle with it. You try to seek, you know, you seek out God and say, what do you want me to do with what I have heard this morning? And I trust that God leads you um, to a place of healing and complete freedom. Let's pray. Father God, I think everyone in the room is, is thinking the same thing I've been thinking. And that is, what is this going to look like? What is exactly supposed to happen? So I pray, Lord, that we would take away those fears and that if you're speaking to us this morning and challenging us to become more real with each other, to be more honest with each other, to be more vulnerable with each other, that you would lead all of us to a healthy place of being able to do this. Father, we want to be a church where there is no sin in the camp. We want to be a church where we are able to be free to confess our sins to one another and to receive the healing of having those sins forgiven by you and by one another. So Lord, I pray now that you would lead us and to show us the things that you want us to do with this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.